Today begins part eight of our study in the book of Joshua. Part eight begins right now. Now, understand that Joshua is very much a sequel. Joshua is a part two of an ongoing, ongoing story, the story of the Torah, the story of the Pentateuch, the story of the first five books. We see in the Exodus, God redeeming His people out of 400 years of slavery. And we see here in, in Joshua, God giving His people land and God giving His people rest. That's what Joshua is about. It's about God fulfilling His promises. Because God keeps His promises, and He's giving the people land and rest. Land and rest. And so, we'll begin chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. Verse 1 introduces a problem. The city is tightly sealed. No one's going inside. No one's going outside. It's going to make the task of taking in the city that much more difficult. I mean, there is no element of surprise. People of Jericho, they know Israel's here. And Israel knows that Jericho knows that they're here. And so the city is very much shut, tight, closed, sealed. No one's getting in. No one's getting out. This difficulty is very much now magnified, and it may function. I think chapter 6, verse 1 will function much in the same way that chapter 3, 15 functions. And of course, they're at the, the segue of crossing the Jordan River. And chapter 3, 15 of Joshua reminds the reader that this is going to be that much more difficult because the waters are at flood stage. They are at their height their highest height, they're at their peak. And so just as chapter 3, verse 15 magnifies the difficulty and the challenge ahead of them, that's exactly what chapter 6, verse 1 is doing. No one's getting in. No one's getting out. It's going to be very difficult to take this city. But there's a plan. And the plan is going to be explained in verses 2 to 5, and this is what it says. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city one time. And you're going to do that for six days. Once every day, for six days. Seven priests, verse 4, shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you're going to go around the city seven times. And the priests are going to blow the trumpets, verse 5, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout. There shall be a great shout, and the, and the wall of the city is going to fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So there's the game plan. They've got this city. It's sealed up tight. Really tight. It's well defended. Well fortified, you're going to need a good plan, right? And it's interesting because I imagine as they get in their huddle, I just, I picture this something like the, there's Russell Wilson, right, with his Seattle offensive line and his teammates, right? He's like, all right, there's the plan, guys. And he lays the plan out there, and everyone's probably expecting, okay, this is really difficult. Like, verse 1 has made this really, really difficult. It's going to be really hard to take the city, but that's okay. Joshua's got a great plan. 
And I'm sure they're thinking, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to lay siege? Are we going to surround them? Are we going to starve them out? Are we going to try to batter down the doors? How are we going to do this? And he says, we're, we're just going to walk around the city. <laughs> like, I'm having flashbacks of that Super Bowl with the Patriots and the Seahawks, you know, when it comes to calling bad plays, right? I imagine maybe that's somehow, we're, we're, on, the, we're, on, the, we're on the one yard line and we're not going to run the ball? Oh, hey, hang, hey, hang on a second, Russell Wilson. Hang on a second, Joshua. Wait. We're, we're just going to walk around the city? Are, what? Here's this city, tightly sealed, no element of surprise. And I'm sure as they're hearing Joshua give the plan that God has given to them, they're maybe concerned that it's the wrong play call. Because... How are you going to take this city? You might say, this, there's no way you can take this city. And, well, you'd be right. There is no way without some divine assistance. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But probably not in the way that maybe they expected it. We sing the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Not today or anything, but when we're children, I'm sure some of you may have sung the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the walls, they came tumbling down. But thinking about this story, that song is rather misleading, for it will be abundantly clear that Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho whatsoever. In fact, we're going to see our attention not on Joshua throughout this story, but rather on God throughout this story. How he is the warrior God, he is the warrior king, and he is for his people, and he fights for his people. And the attention is very much put on him in the next two verses. Notice verse 6 and 7. So Joshua... The son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, notice that, and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said, verse 7, to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. You can hopefully let your ears perk up because you're going to hear this phrase all throughout this. And if you remember about the Ark of the Covenant of the Ark of the Lord, it, it contained three different items. It contained the staff of Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother. It contained manna that God had used over 40 years in the wilderness wanderings to feed the people. It contained the tablets, the tablets that Moses received when he went upon Sinai and was given the law by God. It was the most physical prized possession. It was their most holy possession. And the reason is because the Ark of the Covenant symbolized, it was symbolic of God's physical presence with His people. And so this story is going to not take the spotlight and put it on Joshua. The story is going to spotlight God throughout verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the Lord following them. Nine, the armed men were walking before the priest who were blowing the trumpets and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. Verse 10, but Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. And then on that day, 
you're going to shout and make lots of noise. Verse 11. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Essentially says, and reminds the people, we're going to be radio silenced during this time. No one is talking. No one is making jokes. No one is uttering any words. No whispering. No nothing. Radio silence. The priests will be blowing their horns. That's it. We'll go around the city once. That's the plan. And then he continues in verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, and they did this for six days. And then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day. They marched around the city in the same manner, except this time they did it seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. So these verses are really just repeating the course of events. Every day, they're going out one time with the ark of the Lord, right? Remember, this is symbolizing God's physical presence And that's what we're seeing here. This warrior God, this warrior king who fights for his people. They're going around every single day, once. But then on the seventh day, they go around seven times. It sets it up for this crescendo, for the apex of events in this story to occur. And at, verse 16, and at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So we give some further examples of what they are to do and what they're not to do. With the exception of Rahab and her family, they're going to devote everything to destruction. With the exception of some gold, silver, iron items, valuable, rare, metallic items, those are going to be taken and put in the treasury of the Lord. A little ambiguity on that, a little vagueness as to the location of the treasury because the word treasury here is the same one used for those in Solomon's temple that was built many years later in 1 Kings 7.51, but there's no Solomon yet, which means there's no Solomon's temple. So the exact nature of where they were going to stash everything is unknown, but we're given a little bit of a clue in verse 24. And in verse 24 it says, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now the phrase, the treasury of the house of the Lord, reveals perhaps the location of where they're storing everything because in Psalms chapter 27 verse 4 and verse 6 the phrase house of the Lord and 
the tabernacle are used interchangeably. And so where they're exactly putting this stuff very well may have referred to the tabernacle itself, this essentially temporary-like temple that they had, that they used to house the ark until Solomon built his temple. But there's a couple things that are happening that are very much a focal point here. Four things that are very much emphasized at this point in the story. And I think the first thing I I think we need to make sure we notice is the fulfillment of the spy's oath to Rahab. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the women and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her and they brought all her relatives and they put them outside the camp of Israel. The first thing that is important that we don't miss is the spies keeping their oath and promise to Rahab. The second thing that is very much emphasized in this story is in verse 24 where this total destruction, they've destroyed everything, they burned the city with fire, everything in it. The, the third observation and point of emphasis here is that there is this curse placed upon Jericho. Look at verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Interestingly enough, this curse that was placed echoed Moses' instructions back in Deuteronomy 13, 12 to 16. But this curse actually was later fulfilled in the story of 1 Kings chapter 16, 34. There was a man who went and decided to rebuild Jericho, and it came at the cost of his firstborn son and his youngest son. You can see that story in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. But the fourth point of emphasis as we close out chapter 6 is this very evaluative statement about Joshua and his place as Israel's leader. Notice verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. The Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Shouldn't be a shock or a surprise to us. In fact, God had already promised, he promised Joshua that he'd be with Joshua just as he was with Moses. Chapter 3, 7, and and he even began to exalt Joshua in the eyes of all the people back in 414 with the River Jordan crossing. And, And here once again, we see Joshua being uplifted. His fame is spreading beyond just Israel and the land. And it is once again a reminder of God's faithfulness. Why? Because he said he was going to do it. And if God says he's going to do something, well, you can take it to the bank. He's going to do it. He's going to keep his word because he's faithful and you can trust him. There is one, I think, unique note. And it comes... I believe in verse 25, it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, this last statement in verse 25 about Rahab being alive to this day would perhaps suggest that the book of Joshua was written within a 
few years after the events described in this book had happened, and that very well may be the case, as we discussed in the introduction to this book nearly two, over two months ago. But remember that the reference to Rahab being alive to this day, living among the Israelites to this day, could also refer to her descendants in the same way, in the same manner that there is a reference to David in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, but it indicated David's descendants rather than David himself. So I don't think we can conclusively say or use verse 25 of chapter 6 conclusively to date the writing of the book, but that's not really the point in and of itself. The point is not to use verse 25 to date the book, but rather to indicate the lasting effects of the agreement that the spies made with her. When you remember in the story, in Joshua 2, the spies go in this city, she hides them, and after she hides them, they strike an agreement. They form a pact of sorts. But we know in lieu of Deuteronomy 7 that this was absolutely forbidden thing for them to do. They were under no circumstances whatsoever to enter into any sort of agreement with the people living in the land of Canaan. When the spies did this, they were a hundred percent wrong. Or they would have been with one exception. And that is Rahab's declaration of who Israel's God is. We spent a lot of time hammering this home in chapter 2. The Lord your God, He is God. It's more than just a statement of fact as she uses Yahweh's personal name here. It translates in English, the Lord, right? The Lord your God, He is God. In the heavens above and on the earth below, there is no one else like Him. It's just Him. It's just Him. And that's important to remember because apart from that, Apart from that, there would have never been any binding agreement. Apart from that, Rahab would not escape the same fate that the other residents of Jericho had escaped. And so the point in verse 25, once again, is not to show us how we can date this story, but rather to show the lasting effects of the agreement between the spies that they made with Jericho, agreements that they were forbidden to make because... She's not one of them, but clearly they don't see her not as, not that she's not one of them. She, she essentially now is a follower of the true God, and that very much is the point and reminder in verse 25. And so, chapter 6 comes to an end. Chapter 6 Joshua presents some very difficult challenges. Difficult challenges, like such difficult challenges that I've devoted half the length of this sermon to answer and handle. Some of you are like, wow, we're getting out of here in like 20 minutes. 15 minutes, that was the shortest sermon ever. If I may draw your attention to verse 21... Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. They have devoted the men, the women, the children, everything to the edge of the sword. The idea to devote something to God is an important concept in the book of Joshua. In the Old Testament, uh, it's used as a verb 51 times, as a noun 29 times it is to devote something to God. 51 times as a noun, 29 times as a verb in the Old Testament. 
this word slash phrase occurs more in the book of Joshua than anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. It is a central concept of the utmost importance in this book, but it also creates some very, very tough questions to answer. That is, how can God be a holy God, a loving God, a just God, when He commands such harsh actions to take place. He's barbaric. Evil, some would say. Our Goetz represents much of this opinion when he states, and I quote, the book of Joshua is embarrassment enough with its ferocity and its religious advocacy of mass murder, end quote. So figure me that. Some of you perhaps have been challenged on this very issue. If you haven't, hang out some more, spend a little bit more time with some non-Christians, and you will be. How is he a holy, loving God when he commands Joshua? No survivors. Everyone's dying in Jericho, with the exception of Rahab and her family. They're all being put to death. Men, women, and children. So, I'll give a defense to you. That's the question, and people want to put God on trial. So you be the jury. And I'll give my best defense of why I think our goets and many whom his opinion represents why they're wrong. And I would first uh, like to say this in my introductory remarks, that keep in mind that the human perspective is not always the divine perspective. We are finite creatures trying to comprehend an infinite being. This is nothing new. The prophet Isaiah has said this In Isaiah 55, his ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts. Who can comprehend or know the mind of God? So, while it may seem to finite creatures such as ourselves that he is being unloving, unjust, cruel, harsh, I would argue that our perspective may be skewed or rather not in a line with his perspective, which is more accurate than our perspective. And so I will give three defense, three key arguments to make a defense for this in arguing that no, Joshua is not an embarrassment enough and that it is not arguing in the name of religion for or to excuse genocidal behavior. My first point that I'd like to make is this. It was of the utmost concern that Israel worshipped God the right way. How we worship God matters. Terrence and I were talking about this earlier. Like, like words tell a story. Therefore, it really matters what words we're going to use to tell a story about God because telling the wrong story, telling the wrong story can greatly impact how we perceive and understand and even worship God. It's important that we get the story right, that we worship God the right way. Why? Because he's a jealous God, for starters. This has significant implications today with many, many churches 
becoming very liberal, especially on issues of LGBTQIA, I think, issues. I mean, the United Methodist Church is, is who we rent. We rent from United Methodist. Like, they are at a crossroads right now. I was just listening to Al Mohler in the briefing on Friday, and that they're calling for, they do a general assembly once every four years. Everyone gets together, and many of the leaders are pushing to speed it up to 2019 because the general assembly includes all United Methodists, even from overseas. And many of them are very, very conservative, and it's actually becoming more conservative. And so many of the liberals who are very pro-LGBTQIA are saying, we need to push this to a vote as soon as possible. We can't wait to 2020. We need to do it 2019 before we lose any more ground on this issue. On this issue. So, yeah, there's going to be very practical implications here. You say, well, Israel is supposed to worship the God, the true God, so you worship Yahweh the right way. We're supposed to believe true things about God and what, and what the Word says. That's really important that we don't mess this up. That we don't mess this up. That we don't obscure this. And oh, by the way, Israel's already messed this up. While wandering in the wilderness back in Numbers chapter 25, Numbers chapter 31, 1 to 4, they already fell in the temptation of worshiping Baal, the Canaanite God of the storm. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 20, 17 to 18, I'll paraphrase, but God essentially says, go in, destroy them all, so that they don't teach you to do things, to do abominations, which they do and have done on behalf of their gods. You're going to go in, Deuteronomy 20, 17, 18, you're going to go in, you're going to wipe them out, so they don't teach you to do these abominations and then call it worship. Now, you could easily make the case, well, that's a pretty weak art. This is your opening defense, Joe? Understand this, okay? That the call here is a very specific call. I would, I would argue this story is descriptive rather than prescriptive. This story is describing what's happening rather than prescribing this. The instructions for Israel to annihilate the Canaanites were at a very specific time, with a very specific intent, with even specific geographical details. It was not a blanket statement of permission for Israel to do the same to any people that they encountered at any time or in any place. It was limited. This instruction was very limited at a crucial time when Israel was just establishing itself as a theocracy under God to protect them and their worship of God. People say, well, still, I don't like that, right? So you're saying in Deuteronomy 20, 17 to 18, that they're supposed to go, God tells them to go wipe out everyone so that they don't tempt Israel? Well, that seems still pretty tough, that they don't tempt Israel to, to worship their God like they do their gods. I don't know about that. So just anyone who, LGBTQIA or any other issues, just go kill them so that that doesn't become a temptation. Once again, remember, these instructions were given at a very specific time specific place in history of Israel. And this instruction is descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's not a blanket statement to go and slaughter people that might cause a temptation or a stumbling block to you. But in case that seems harsh, let me give you a, a taste. Just a taste of some of these abominations that they were doing in the name of worshiping their gods. Leviticus 18, 6 to 23 gives us a, a little bit of a preview, a little bit of a larger context. The sins of these people included incest, 
incestuous relationships. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. It, it included engaging in adultery. It included engaging in child sacrifice. I don't mean like we were in Amos a year ago where they were cutting out unborn babies from mother's wombs. That was pretty graphic if you remember that part in Amos. Uh, what I mean is they're little kids who are alive and murdering them in the name of worship. included homosexual activity. It included bestiality, just as a preview. So that's what God says. You're going to worship me the right way? These people have already caused you to stumble once in the wilderness, so you're going to go in, you're going to wipe them all out so that they don't teach you, they don't teach you to worship me in these abominable ways and say it's okay. And say, oh, it's okay. Why? Because he's a jealous God and it's important that we think right things about God, that we worship him the right way. It's important that we worship him the right way. Here's my second point of defense. In defense of God. I already said in my opening remarks that this story comes as a part two, as a sequel to a larger story. Okay? This story is part two, volume two, to the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, especially the story of the Exodus where the people spent 400 years in slavery. So here's my second point. Why 400 years in slavery? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why 400 years in slavery? Why not 300? Or 200? 150? Why 400 years? Never really took time to think about that. And then one day I was reading this book called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose for the Glory of Christ. I'll tell you who wrote it, but you probably already know. <laughs> and he raised this question. The book is great because it, it has all these really weird Bible verses, and this is a weird Bible verse. Why 400 years? And the answer, well, the answer, we have to go to Genesis chapter 15, when God formalizes his covenant with Father Abraham. Now, at this time, when he formalizes his covenant with Father Abraham... There is essentially no Israel. Okay? Abraham has Isaac, has Jacob, has his sons, Joseph, coat, many colors, sold, brothers, Egypt. Famine. Joseph's elevated, second position, famine. People come. They've got food. They stay. 400 years. So none of that's in place right now. And so he's formalizing this covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And here's what he says. In verse 13, Know for certain, Abraham, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For Now here's the reason. Why 400 years in Egypt? Here's the reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And remember, I've referenced this before in Joshua, Amorites and Canaanites, these terms can be used interchangeably. They're not necessarily a specific ethnic background, but really a generalization of people living in the land. And that's the reason. What a peculiar, strange reason. So God, when he formalizes this covenant with Abraham in an almost prophetic way, says, oh, by the way, your ancestors are going to spend 400 years in a land that is not their own. Why? Why not 300 or 200 or 150 years? Why 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They will be afflicted 400 years. God has very strange reasons why. Why they must not leave for four centuries. Think of it. Four centuries. Why? Like, they got to wait four centuries before they inherit the land because, verse 15 of Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That perhaps annihilating them before that time, maybe it wouldn't have been justified. And so we see God totally patient, totally merciful, while they're sacrificing their little boys and little girls to their pagan gods in the name of worship and doing all types of other terrible, terrible things. God is patient. Our Goets would say this book is an embarrassment its ferocity, its advocacy of mass murder in the name of religion. Think about God's patience. Think about his long-suffering. It almost makes me think of the story of Pharaoh. God sends Moses to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Plague. Sends Moses back. Pharaoh, let my people go. No. Plague. Sends him again. Pharaoh, let my people go. No. Plague sends him again. Pharaoh, this is madness. Like, let my people go. This is madness. And Pharaoh says, No! You're not God. I'm God. And I'm not letting them go. And he sends Moses again and again and again and again. And each time Pharaoh says, no way. Not happening. Decade after decade after decade after decade after century after century after century rolls by. God putting up with the sin of these people. And keep in mind, recall now chapter 2 Joshua. They knew the same stories. You've got to think that Rahab knew. Rahab says, we've heard what you've done to the kings of Og and Sihon. We've heard what happened in Exodus 14 when God led your leader Moses and you crossed the the, the Red Sea on dry ground. We've heard of all those things. Our hearts have melted. We know in chapter 5, verse 1, after they crossed the Jordan River, all the kings of the land, their hearts too melted. But their response, unlike Rahab's, was different. They heard the same stories that Rahab heard but they had two very different responses. 
their hearts melted. They felt sad. They felt scared. They were upset. Rahab, her response, she's one of the people of Jericho. Her response, very different. Her response is, the Lord your God. Remember, it's not just a statement of fact. She's using Yahweh's personal name. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. And she essentially pledged her commitment and allegiance to Him. She, she's heard and they've heard the same story, yet she has a very different response. They don't want to stop sinning. They don't want to turn. They don't want to repent from their evil. You've got to think that had they been willing to react as Rahab or even the Gibeonites, as we'll see later on in this story, had they been willing to react the way she or they had acted, we would see very different results. Maybe verse 21 wouldn't even be in there. But they don't. Why? 400 years. Because God is going to showcase His patience and His mercy with these people. He is going to be totally merciful He is going to be so merciful, so patient. I mean, he could have snapped his fingers and been done with these people centuries ago, but he waited and waited and waited. So he's both totally patient, totally merciful, and as we'll see in verse 21, totally just. Totally just in annihilating them all. Here's my third point of defense. Everyone who dies, dies because God has willed for them to die, and God decides ultimately when your last breath will be. And he does us no wrong whatsoever if he takes a life at two weeks old or 99 years old because God doesn't owe us anything. You add to that that we are radically depraved and God-hating and we deserve to go to hell like yesterday? And the fact that you're going to take in another breath of oxygen in this very moment is far more due to His grace than you even realize. Have you not heard that it was said by Job in chapter 121? Job 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of our God. We sang that earlier. A lot of these songs are based off of Bible stories. Those are the songs I like the most. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He does us no wrong whatsoever if He takes a life at two weeks or 99 years. And to, to say otherwise is the height of arrogance. Say, you've got no right, God, as our Goets would say. You make the story of Joshua an embarrassment. You advocacy, you advocate mass murder in the name of religion. As if our Goets and others would dare claim to have the moral edge on the creator of the universe. It is the height and peak of arrogance to say, God, let me tell you. What is morally right and wrong? It, it very much is reminiscent, right, of the conversation later on in the story of Job, where he says, Now, Job, tell me, where were you when I spoke the universe into existence? Were you, where were you? Oh, that's right, you weren't there. 
And where were you when I decided to store up the heavenly storehouses of snow and then release them at a time and a place that I wanted to? No, where were you there? Were you, were you there? No. That's right, you weren't there, Job, were you? To suggest otherwise is to claim to have the moral edge on the creator of the universe. It is the height of arrogance. God does us no wrong, guys. He does us absolutely no wrong. Absolutely no wrong. The fact is, is we spend most of our lives living in this country, and we are incredibly spoiled and have so much entitlement. I mean, that's most of our government runs on entitlements. Not to make this like political or anything, that's not what I'm saying, but we're so spoiled, and we think of ourselves as so much better than we probably should. There was a Charles Spurgeon quote I've seen going around lately. It said, don't feel bad, don't feel sad, don't worry if someone says something really mean or nasty to you, Joe paraphrased, because if someone thinks of you to be really, really bad, don't worry, because uh, you're actually far worse than what they actually think. <laughs> right, so there is a proper place for the humility, and ma- humility of man that we need to see ourselves in as it relates to God, he is above all things, beyond all things, totally glorious, totally magnificent, and he owes us nothing. The fact that everyone's still breathing after I made that comment three minutes ago is to common grace and nothing more. And so, yes, Joshua and his people are going to be and end up being used by God to carry out his judgment on this people. And God is showed to be both totally merciful and patient and totally just in having them all put to death. What I want us to see, what I want us to take away, what I want us to observe from this story are a few things. One, as I said at the beginning, it's very clear Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. We go back to last week's sermon in chapter 5 where Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army and he says, listen, are you for us or for our adversaries? He says no, right? We, we, we deal with this issue of Joshua's perspective, Joshua's priorities, because God's already promised to be for Joshua. I mean, four days earlier, they crossed the Jordan. And so, even though he doesn't answer Joshua's question, it's very clear, right? Because it's the very next part, chapter 6, comes at the heels of chapter 5. That Yes, of course, he's for his people. He's the warrior king. He fights for his people. He's for his people. And we need to remember that. And oh, by the way, he might not always be for you in the way that you want him to. Right? Might be there in the huddle, and he's like, all right. And you're like, wait, I, didn't, I don't think we should call that play. I don't think that's the right way. We shouldn't do it like this. I think that's part of our problem. When we see this big challenge or big obstacle or big issue in our life, like, I don't know, this impenetrable fortress that's called Jericho. Uh, God, hey, let me give you, hey, let me give you some advice real quick. Uh, we don't want to do it like that. I think that's part of the problem that we have, and that's once again tied into this issue of pride, that we somehow know better. Just as those other people somehow have the moral edge and superiority over God and what He does. God is for us. Have you not heard that it was said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But don't make the mistake in thinking He's not for you because He doesn't act or respond in accordance with your will or the way you want Him to be for you. But He's for you nonetheless. And He fights for His people and He's faithful to His people. He is both totally merciful and patient and both totally just. 
my hope today is, despite having your theology totally wrecked when you were children singing how Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, that you walk away today seeing that we serve the warrior king, the warrior God, and he fights for his people. He fights for his people. Sometimes we feel like we have to do all the fighting. And sometimes the best thing to do is, as the psalmist would tell us in Psalms 41 to 3, to just wait patiently. As the band comes, I'd like to pray for us. Thank you, God, for being totally just and yet totally merciful. Your ways sometimes are so peculiar to us, so strange. But I'm glad, Lord, that you and not me or anyone else is quarterback in this this thing called life. That you'd help us and protect us from pride and just help us to trust you. Like as peculiar as sometimes your ways are, like walking around the city. Strange, indeed. We trust you. As strange as the covenant with Abraham was for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, that's so peculiar and strange. It makes me think of Acts 14.22, through many tribulations one must enter the kingdom of God. That we ourselves go through many difficulties, many challenges on our way to glory, on our way to being with you in your presence. Just as Israel went through 400 years on their way to coming and taking the promised land. So I pray that you would make our faith secure, that we would trust you. Help us, Jesus. We need your help. Amen.